the Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. But I am a Christian first, a conservative second, and a Republican third, and I praise Jesus. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Welcome to this week's In the News for Texas Politics for the week of whatever the date is. I'm your host, Jim Henson. And I'm Josh Blank. And today we're here to talk a little bit about what's been happening this week in Texas government and politics. A lot of what we'll talk about this week really falls out of one subject, right? The failure of Proposition 1 in Austin, which was the ride-sharing proposition that got lots of attention statewide, not just in Austin. Right. So in December of 2015, the city council here in Austin approved an ordinance that required drivers of ride-hailing apps like Uber and Lyft to undergo uh, fingerprint-based background checks by 2017. In addition to this, uh, it also regulated drop-offs and pickups, vehicle identification, some reporting that had to be done to the city. But the main piece of this was the fingerprint requirement and the background checks. So really quickly, in January of the following year, a pack founded by Uber and Lyft, which was called Ride Sharing Works for Austin. And if you live in Austin, you've received maybe dozens, if not <laughs> hundreds of mailers. From a Ride- huge pile. Right. A huge pile <laughs> from Ride Sharing Works for Austin. And they submitted a petition that would repeal the ordinance if approved by the voters. And this is kind of what has actually led to a lot of confusion. I mean, even for me, a lot of people didn't understand that, you know, if you vote yes on Prop 1, that was actually a repeal of the ordinance that the city had passed. And and, I mean, I was confused. Lots of people were confused. The statesman wrote a whole thing about how confusing this was. Yeah, it was pretty telling. People that followed politics a lot, like yourself, were kind of going out, wait a minute, which which one is which? If I'm voting yes, am I voting for the companies or against the companies or for more safety or against safety? It's a lot of confusion about it, which they try to take advantage of. Right. They definitely try to take advantage of it. So just to be clarify, so to vote yes on Prop 1 would have repealed the ordinance that the city passed. To vote against the ordinance would have kept it in place. So we had the election last weekend on May 7th. 56% of Austinites voted against the proposition. 44% voted for it. So the ordinance stayed on the book. What was interesting was sort of what happened between putting this on the ballot and the election. And, you know, basically a lot of people thought that the outcome was going to be was a surprise, right, Jim? Yeah, I mean, it was a huge surprise, I think, to a lot of people. Now, it's sort of like having a hard time finding people that voted for Richard Nixon after he resigned, a reference that very few people will probably get. But, you know, I think going into this, there was a growing sense that it was in trouble. But when you looked at the fundamentals of this... There was very little polling out there, but you looked at the the fact that the ride-sharing companies spent, I think, in the end, in the neighborhood of $9 million. There's over 8.6 at last check. Right. It'll probably end up being over 9. Yeah, but there'll be, there'll be some reporting to come. And, you know, so, and, and we're doing all kinds of extra things that were inherent in their position, you know, offering people discounted rides and using the ride-share app to try to turn out the vote for people that were their consumer base. And so I think for quite a while, there was a general sense that the other side was really outgunned. I think in the end, and we haven't seen final reporting from them either, but they only spent a couple hundred thousand dollars. Right. So, you know, very seriously outspent. 
And turnout was up. I mean, they they did do what they wanted to do. So turnout ended up being around 17% of Austin. And I guess the average turnout in city elections over the last, you know, five or 10 years is like closer to like 11.4%. So they got more people out, which I guess a lot of us thought, oh, they've probably accomplished what they tried to accomplish. Right. So you've got a take on this about that I, I think makes sense about maybe why we shouldn't have been surprised going in there. And I, I'm not accusing you of saying you voted for Richard Nixon and didn't admit it till later. All right. I, I was very, very loosely attached to this position that I thought, <laughs> you know, the, the ordinance might get defeated. Nothing like was, the strength of a loose intellectual I was, attachment. I was, very, I, was, yeah, I was very easily swayed. I mean, basically, I thought, you know, I think it's going to fail. And, and, and you said to me, well, turnout's up. And I said, oh, okay, it's probably going to pass. Right. So that's about the strength of my conviction. But... Where the conviction came from is, is, you know, I guess conviction is the wrong word, but where it came from was just, I mean, in some ways I hate this because I'm a quantitative guy, but where it came from was driving around Austin, you know, <laughs> and it also came from, and it came from this other thing. Well, you were counting signs. I was counting signs, which of course, everyone who ever's worked on a campaign or even around a campaign will tell you this and you'll hear it a million times, which is lawn signs don't vote. Having said that, I'm going around the city, you know, driving around, doing my errands and I'm looking and I keep seeing these vote no on prop one signs up. I see a couple vote for Prop 1, which is the Uber and Lyft position, at a couple of, you know, like commercial intersections. You might see a string of like 10 of them in one place. But the interesting thing to me was the houses where I would see these vote against Prop 1 signs were the same houses where I'd see signs endorsing a city council member. Right. Right. The same sort of 1970s ranch homes, people who've been in these houses for a long time, kind of old Austin, people who were here long before Uber and Lyft. And you kind of got the sense that, hmm, it seems to be more like I can't find someone who's voting for Prop 1, you know, at least in terms of sort of my circles. And I keep driving around and I keep seeing these sort of, you know, the people that I'd expect to actually turn out in a city election. They don't seem outwardly don't seem to be against it. These were voters. These are voters. And that's the main point here is that you start to say, you know, who are the type of people who turn out in city elections? Who are the type of people who are really plugged in to these sorts of local issues? And it's not necessarily the type of people who are going to be say, you know, who are going to acquiesce to the Uber and the Lyft message. We can just, yeah, we could really just call them what they are. They're old time Austin liberals. They're largely Democrats with a smattering of libertarian is not quite right because it's a little too formalized, but the kind of leave me alone, but still socially liberal folks that really make up Austin culture and a lot of the Austin electorate and have driven Austin politics for a long time. I think going into it, I still felt, you know, in terms of defending how I was wrong, I mean, it still felt to me like some of those people were being peeled off by either the convenience and and beyond the convenience of Uber and Lyft, the argument that this was a, a vote against innovation and the new economy, et cetera. And certainly there are a lot more people in Austin now than there were 15 years ago who are susceptible to those arguments because of the nature of urban development in the city, the growth of the tech sector, et cetera. But the media framing around that changed significantly in that inter-period, right? Well, I think that was the key. Frankly, the Austin American statesman and social media combined, but the statesman was really all over this and it got picked up by local media. The storyline became how much money they were spending. So two Fridays before the election. And also also the misleading nature in which, you know, Yeah, I mean, I think, but that was kind of out there. But I mean, the misleading, one of the reasons the the misleading nature of the advertisements that were saying vote for Prop 1 for safety, when really the, the no vote was the vote for the more stringent public safety position. Right. 
But it was really when those fin- campaign finance reports came out on this second Friday before the election, and it came out that Uber had spent up to that point $8 million or 8.2, that every headline and every lead of every local newscast was ride-sharing companies set record spending and it's all funded by the corporations. And I think that really resonated with this Austin electorate that you're talking about in a way that I'm not sure it had up to that point. Right. I mean, there were definitely, I mean, sort of interesting. I mean, we, and we don't know. I mean, there are definitely reasons to vote against the proposal. I think for the most part, I think people would like more transportation options in Austin. I think that's a pretty safe statement. But having said that, you can kind of say, well, there's a sort of anti-corporate position that was definitely exists here. Yeah. Right. There's also this sense of, you know, they elected the city council to pass these laws to regulate industry. Yeah. And who are these guys to come in and say, no, don't do that? Right? Yeah. I mean, there is a certain amount of attachment to the idea of democracy, as it turns out. Right. So I guess we're done with this, right? It's all over now. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think not only is this not over, this wasn't even the beginning of it, which is another interesting part of this story that, you know, honestly, as I talked to reporters about the story, I kept trying to get them to go back and put this in context. So if you go back to well before this all arose and the matter of the ordinance arose in Austin, the ride sharing companies, again, in particular Uber had been very active in the state legislature in the 2015 session trying to get some statewide regulation that protected them and was favorable to their model, to their economic model, in place. Now, they didn't succeed, but it was an open secret in the inside capital community that is the 2015 session was beginning to gear up really in late 2014 that a lot of the the people that had freelance lobby practices were going out and people were looking to get a ride-sharing client on one side of the fight or other of the other because they knew there was going to be a fight and Uber was out there basically hiring up. So literally it was either Saturday or Sunday. The vote was Saturday. I think it was either that evening or Sunday. State Senator Charles Schwartner came out with a press right. release basically saying, I'm going to file legislation in the next session to deal with you know the patchwork nature of our cab laws and you know around the state because right. you know, we can't have these cities stifling innovation et cetera et cetera, my first thought was well the Texas legislature probably won't cost eight million dollars right right so I mean that was my first thing but I mean obviously it fits into this bigger context right right and I think you know the context is both political and economic so there's the political context that this has been going on in state politics for a while obviously uber and lyft have been fighting with other cities most notably in texas houston where in fact a a set of rules like the one the city council in austin wants are also in place in houston Mm -hmm. new york city if you take this nationally has a much more stringent very new york northeastern liberal i don't know if you've looked at those but somebody published a list of what you have to do you have to actually go for an interview with the taxi and limousine commission oh yeah to get your thing so you know i can't even imagine what that what those interviews are like so this has been going on as a political thing well before the austin thing and well beyond texas and then economically those numbers look differently to uber than they look to the city of austin and i think they probably underestimated that here in terms of you know schwartner's price tag we'll see uh or the legislature's price tag to be more fair we'll see what that looks like I think that we're going to see this in a pretty big way, and it fits into a number of interesting contexts in the legislature. There's a bunch of different political frames you can look at this through. Right, and what's what's particularly interesting about this in some ways is that 
we just mentioned, you know, Senator Shortner is, is a Republican, right? And there is this sense of, you know, isn't the GOP for local control? Isn't that right. one of their primary sort of drivers that, you know, we need to sort of devolve some of these this regulation, you know, from the federal government to the state governments, and then even more, let's say, from the state governments to local governments. And traditionally, that has been the frame. But in the last couple of years, we've really seen it's a, a lot less of that. Yeah, a lot less of that. Maybe, maybe it's more complicated than that, right? Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, and I, you and I have talked about this a lot. It's either more complicated or less. It's, yeah. Right? I, that, I'm starting to settle on less. That we just extrapolated too much from one key set of areas. And, right. you know, in Texas, the, the rhetoric of local control and devolving local control has really always been focused on education. And it's been colored by resistance to larger educational standards, particularly federal rules, most recently core, but even going back farther than that to the National Department of Education, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so that's been a huge piece of the education fight. Right. And it strikes me in sitting here and thinking about like why local control you know, applies to, let's say, or why the GOP's embrace of local control applies to education versus some of these other issues, which you can talk about, is probably because there's so much federal money involved in education right? that they can't necessarily wrest themselves from that money, but they can wrest themselves from, let's say, the rules that go with it. And that's what that right. local control argument is about. But as we've seen over, let's see, the last couple sessions, at least, and especially even in the last session, this embrace of local control doesn't extend much further. Or even to all localities for that matter. Right. But I, you know, before even thinking about the other ones, I think it's also amplified by more recent changes in the nature of the discussion of K through twelve, emphasis on locally organized charter schools or charter schools are invited in mm-hmm. from other places and private schools, right? And the the desire, you know, the whole what we call the school choice argument, right. quote unquote. This contention between how state government is viewed versus say, uh, local governments, where the locus of that is, really is one of the major tropes in politics right now. We've written about this in a couple of different places. So, you know, in the wake of the Austin vote, you go back and you can see all these other things that fit this pattern of contention about this fight between whether how much authority the state should have over local government and how much the state should proceed in limiting what local government can do. The most prominent example of this recently was the reversal of the ban on fracking in Denton. So a couple of years ago, the Denton, city of, Denton, the liberal enclave. Right, exactly. You know, so the city of Denton passes, for those who don't know anything about this, passes uh, the, the city council with a lot of local pressure, and some would argue local pressure augmented by people from outside environmental groups in particular, passed pretty stout restrictions on fracking inside the city limits the, and other kind of oil and gas activity. And then the legislature comes back, of course, the Texas oil and gas industry you know, gets an injunction against this ordinance within, you know, it's much like you know, the company's leaving. The instant, you know, this happens, they've got their papers ready and they've filed to an injunction against the implementation of the ordinance. Unlike Uber and Lyft, they can't say, we're not going to drill in Texas anymore. Right. They just have to exit the market, or at least at least for now. And then the, the legislature gets involved very quickly the following session in 2015 and passes a state law that effectively reverses the ban and prevents other cities from implementing similar kinds of bans, much to the dismay of all of the advocacy organs of local government, the Texas Association of Counties, Texas Municipal League, the cities themselves. We saw the defeat of the HERO ordinance, which was a anti-discrimination ordinance aimed at protecting LGBT communities in Houston. 
Now, state government didn't act immediately to do that, but the state leadership of the Republican Party, particularly Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, got very involved in that race. And there was, again, this rhetoric of city government run amok, if you will. And then even finally, and this is actually very active today as we record this, the Republican caucus in the Senate has formed a select committee on property tax fairness, essentially. I can't remember exactly what the title of the committee is. And they've been going around the state having essentially field hearings where they invite, quote unquote, local tax authorities and county judges and mayors to come and testify. And then, frankly, give them a good kicking about their tax burden and the way that they're running up local debt. So you step back from all this and you were seeing this pattern of state government and mainly Republicans asserting authority over these local governments. And in the cases of many of the big cities, much of these local governments are, we have to say, if not formally, at least informally because of the the way state law works for nonpartisanship in local elections. They are Democrats in many cases, though. In a few. <laughs> What does this tell us going forward? I mean, is it, I mean, it seems like this is really kind of central in some way, this fiscal component to this, right? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I think the element is something like, you know, we know that the Republican Party in the main has been very small government anti-tax. Right. They had a pretty good run at trying to tamp down taxes in state government as much as they can. They're now looking for other targets. They can't do much at the federal level, but they can do stuff to state and local government through the agency of the legislature. And this is in the broader context of a changing state, you know, certainly demographically we know, but also, you know, potentially changing political culture, right? I mean, Texas has these huge cities, right? These huge urban centers. They're growing. They're becoming, you know, a bigger player in the state, right? And they want to deliver the sorts of things that their constituents are looking for, but it's within this context of a state government that has these general, let's say, ideological requirements for how the state is going to be governed. And so because of that, we just, we're going to expect to see this happening more and more and more. No, I I think that's a real smart read. And the the tension in these to be as much of a dork as possible, I would say. Please it's do. really interesting to watch these field hearings, one of which, as I said, is going on today as the committee is being led by Senator Paul Betancourt, arch conservative from the Houston area. And they're going to these county officials, county judges, and saying, you know, and, and Dan Patrick actually testified at the last one. And they're going and they're saying, look, we're not declaring war on you, but. We're here to stick up for your taxpayers. Right. So there's almost a kind of interposition here, to use a weird historical reformulation, in which these state officials are asserting their representative responsibilities over the elected state and local officials. And it's it's a pretty interesting development in the role that these state officials see for themselves I don't know what the long, how the long term of that really shakes out in right. terms what's, of what's, what's the, Republic, the Republican brand. Yeah, and know. what's the equilibrium? At what point, you know, is the balance of power right between local governments and the state government? And it's hard within the constitutional system that Texas has. Yeah, and, and, and how those mechanisms are going to work. I mean, you know, Dan Patrick was lecturing a county judge at the last field hearing in Arlington, telling him, you know, leave it to your voters to figure out how much police funding they want, how much other public safety funding they want, how much they need roads. That's a 
pretty clunky mechanism. I mean, at a certain level, we do have representative government for a reason that right. you can't really go to the voters. It's not very efficient to go, hey, you think crime's gone up too much? Maybe we ought to go and, in you know, within a year pass a measure that allows us to raise taxes enough to hire a few more cops because the population is exploding. It's a weird preference for a devolution of power from the presiding officer of the Senate who has garnered more power for himself over that period. You know, I think the long term play is an interesting one. But as we know, I mean, our polling has shown that there is an opening for them, at least for the state level officials among Republican primary voters in the moment. Right. And that's what's most important. At least that's what that that's what works for them. It's true until it's not. Right. <laughs> so is there feedback or not? You know, I mean, I think that's what we'll see. I think we end on a note of democratic mechanisms. So thanks for joining us. Jim Henson here with Josh Blank from the Texas Politics Project. And we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.